Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Hope you're doing good. Hope you're hanging tough in these interesting times, folks, as you're stuck in your house listening to the podcast. Strange times, we're glad you're here. Today, I've got a really exciting podcast. I have an interview with Rich Bartlett, who... I'll just describe Rich for you as far as I know. I would say Rich is a bearded Kiwi. He's a self-described nerd. He has been living in Italy and has been in full lockdown mode for more than three weeks. He says he's going a bit crazy, but you can't tell from this conversation. He's smart. He's created a number of really cool companies slash projects slash systems. The line between these terms tends to blur around this guy in a really nice way. And he has written some very astute articles about creating more resilience and support in small groups. I'd say that he's championing for things like growing up, for emotional maturity and emotional intelligence, sovereignty. He's championing inclusion and efficiency and encouragement and he's championing equality at a level of thoughtfulness that is exceedingly rare and very refreshing he's championing a world where we all support each other to do more meaningful work and those are things i really appreciate in this episode rich and i talk about his work at inspiral and lumio We talk about why people have such a hard time working together from how we are raised, our cultures, our biases, all the way to how we think about ourselves. We talk about how systems change. We talk about non-hierarchical organizations, non-violence, small groups, the importance of group size, micro-solidarity, sovereignty, courage. These are all really, really cool things that Rich brought to the podcast, and I super appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please share it, subscribe, leave a review. That really helps. Also, please consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate the people who are supporting me right now. This is a 100% listener-funded podcast. I'm working really hard to keep these interesting conversations coming your way, you guys. So without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my talk with Mr. Rich Bartlett. But I have to walk this road alone Rich, thank you for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, so to start, I would love to just hear from you kind of what you've been doing at Inspiral and Lumio and kind of help me understand what those are and what problem they address. Sure. Um, So Inspiral is a complex system and so any description that i give is going to be um partial 
So my, uh, that means like anyone that you ask from Inspiral will give you a different answer. Um, but my answer is it's a group of friends who help each other grow up and help each other to get paid to do meaningful work. So there's like 200 people. Um, it was founded in New Zealand. And so like the, definitely the heart is in New Zealand, even though it's quite globally distributed now. And um, these people are quite entrepreneurial and they have a sense of how the world should be drastically different from how it is. Mm -hmm. And they have a sense that um, if we're going to, if we're going to change the world to be more like we think it should be, we're going to have to do it together. Like it's a collaborative effort, Mm -hmm. Mm, not just in the execution, but even in the, um, even in the thinking together about what's wrong and what should be done differently, that, that, that whole process is a collaborative effort from the ground up. Um, and it's a, for me, it's just a, a, a very profound support network. It's people that are, like I say, growing up together, you know, like I've been involved for coming up towards 10 years. And so the relationships that I have in Inspiral are some of the most crucial relationships in my life um, outside of my immediate family. And, um, what that looks like, there's some practical stuff. So like, um, most of us are running small businesses or collaborating on sort of freelancer projects and that sort of thing. Uh, and then we do lots of experimentation with, uh, money. So like, um, every, everyone in the collective voluntarily chooses to share some fraction of their income with, with the commons, with the, with the whole collective. And then we have like an internal kind of crowdfunding system where people can, uh, pitch for funding to, for, well, for whatever purpose they like, you know? So it's, um, it could be, um, I want to go to this conference and represent Inspiral, or I, I want to try out this new idea for my company and it's, I need a, a few thousand dollars worth of, um, sort of seed funding to get that going, or it could be, it t- totally could be anything. It's really, it's some, sometimes the, the pitches are really creative. Um, so we're doing th- these sort of experiments with, uh, f- with the money stuff, with the funding stuff as a sort of, um, it's almost like a game. It's like, how can we prototype the organizations of the future where there's no one person in charge and we just have a distributed network of skills and trust and relationships and money and brands and products and you know, like a, just a, a kind of um, complicated mesh of different people working on different stuff and, and, and point all of that effort towards what we call meaningful work, you know? So um, part of the reason it's hard to describe is that everyone is doing different stuff. There's just a lot of different activities. So some people are, um, so yeah, you mentioned Lumio. That's one of the companies I started, which is a software company. So we, we made a platform. It's like a discussion forum that's optimized for online decision-making. So um, lots of different kinds of groups use it when they are trying to organize, trying to make decisions in a non-hierarchical way. And that's one of the companies within the network. Um, And then you've got like a lot of designers and management consultants, and there's a programmer's school, and there's just like a lot of different, um, what we call ventures, little companies, social enterprises within the network. And, And there's no strong, like we haven't got like a really clearly defined consensus about what's the most important stuff to work on. It's like, if it's meaningful to you, then that qualifies, like do the stuff that feels meaningful. And I guess it comes from this position that, um, 
a lot of us have had experience working in the past that didn't, you know, doing work that didn't feel meaningful. And it's, and it's, it's sort of um, uh, a breakaway from bullshit work. Mm. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on your podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can say whatever the fuck you want. Um, Great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in spiral doesn't have a consumer facing, it's not a, it's not a company in that sense. It's more of a network. Yeah. And, 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 um, and it's even, I mean, it's definitely a network, but to me, it's more like a community. It's, it's really, um, like, it's not like you can just rock up to inspiral.com and join, you know, it's, it's really yeah. about, um, people who have, uh, strong friendships and it's, it's, it's very much high trust, um, invitation only, uh, you know, it's not, it's not really trying to scale for instance, it's like a, a very local, um, connected thing, but it, then it has many different, f- uh, faces onto, uh, onto the marketplace. So I mentioned, um, Lumio, I've got another company called the hum, which is more like training and consulting for, for non-hierarchical organizations. Um, but there's, there must be 40 or 50 different brands that, that face into the marketplace. Yeah, this is an amazing idea. I really like this. Um, as an anarchist, just in conversation, people are constantly saying, well, there's no country in the world that doesn't use violence as a form to extort their taxes from their people. And I love Inspiral. That's just a great idea. I can just like point to that. Well, look, there's people who are actually peacefully, voluntarily collaborating and, you know, essentially gathering funds to do myriad things. I really love this idea. Yeah. And the, the, the question then is like, um, how much of that experience that we have with 200 people can like, to what degree does that, um, metaphor extend out to the size of a country, you Mm -hmm. know, because like, it is like a tax, it is like an internal economy. Um, but it's not that we've got the perfect protocols and the, and the best technology and all the great rules that, you know, it's not like a perfect bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. It's a network of relationships of people who more or less love each other and trust each other. And therefore they're willing to like throw their money into these weird experiments. And, and there's just no way that we've got the, um, yeah, biologically, you know, sociologically, we don't have the capacity to do that, to do that in the same way with, with tens of millions of people. Um, well, but it's definitely a good prototype for a, a different way of organizing it at the small scale. We know that much. Yeah. And I think that you're really onto something here. I think that, you know, just as you mentioned, biologically, just neurologically, we are kind of built to manage, you know, no more than 200 intimate relationships at a time. And you wrote another article that was five reasons to start small groups and not a huge massive movement something like that yeah, right it was my 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 knee jerk reaction when i visited the us for the first time <laughs> yes which was <laughs> and everything's huge <laughs> yeah and it was a bit disheartening to me i live in such a beautiful place in such a bubble and my life is just so joyous and free and those things that you uh talk about there somewhat foreign to me but talk to me about you know, the, the idea of something going from an inspiral level where you have 200 people who all know each other and trust each other. And it is literally a, like a friendship bond, a love bond that helps this thing go around to scaling. Like, how do we, 
you know, I know that on a number of your articles, you write, just do the best possible thing that you can and then make it open source so other people can copy you if it's good. So talk to me about how Inspiral like inspires other people to do what it has done and how that like maybe scales to the size of a country. Yeah. Um, so I will answer, um, but I, I will also put in a preface, which is like, um, you know, I don't know you, so I haven't got any context here, but from other conversations I've had with other people, there is this magnetism towards scale which um, is kind of, it's, it's a kind of intellectual curiosity, which I understand, but it also um, can be a trap. It can be a distraction. So like when we're working with um, uh, large organizations and they want to be more non-hierarchical and self-managing and they're like, yeah, but does this work with our, with our organization of 10,000 people? I always say to them like, well, that's the wrong question. The, the right question is how do we get it going with 10 people? And once you've got it going with 10, then come back to me and I'll show you how you, how you do it with 100. And once you've got 100 people, then come back to me and I'll show you, you know, how you can get 100 groups of 100 and maybe. We can, we can start approaching that question once you've got the lived experience of doing it at the smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have got some ideas about how to do it at large scale or, or like what sort of principles uh, replicate. Well, let's, let's... I don't want that, that curiosity to like distract from the immediate right in front of you with, you know, with your neighborhood, that, that level of organizing. No, I think you're totally right. And let's, let's just build me up then build me up from how I deal with my girlfriend to how do I deal with my neighbor to let's just build it up. Sure. Um, so the way that it works in my head is a, just a big long stack of nested circles, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, there's some way that you can draw this diagram where you have the, the smaller circle in the middle, which is, it's me, you know, it's myself. Um, but I like to go even smaller than that. So that, like, that, like, that I'm not even the smallest unit, that there's parts within me. Mm-hmm. Um, and those parts are like, um, you know, my curious self, my courageous self, my silly self, my depressed self, my this, you know, like I've got all these different personalities and, and parts inside of me. And, um, and, the, and in, some, in some regards, you can say the first job is to come to terms with that group, the group of all of the parts of myself. And, and in my own life, what that looks like is coming to terms with there's parts of myself that I try to disown, that I try to um, avoid or, or pretend that they don't exist. And so long as I do that, like I, <laughs> I'm in a state of tension and cognitive dissonance. And when I allow, when I genuinely allow all of my parts to, to coexist, um, that's when I find, you know, that I'm in a state of harmony and that I have a lot of energy and I can get a lot done and I, and I, I feel like um, effective and all that sort of stuff. So like in the last couple of weeks, you know, here I am uh, locked down in Italy and it's kind of a national disaster outside. And I immediately jump into my posture of like, uh, how do I be a leader? How do I be of service? How do I be a good, strong, courageous, protecting? Da, 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 da. All those sorts of parts come to the fore. But for the first couple of weeks, there was another part of myself which was just really frightened. You know, like there's the fearful, scared, sad, um, anxious part. And I was trying to disown that part. You know, like I was trying to just kind of like tough it out or 
um, get over it or don't think about that or just put it away and it doesn't work, you know, like it just really left me twisted up and quite unhappy um, until through some, well, it was mostly facilitated by a couple of really great conversations with good friends of mine that um, I really allowed myself to admit that, yeah, some parts of myself are frightened. Like that's, mm. there's, there's fear in there. And when I allowed myself to just own that feeling, you know, to feel that, like, how does that feel in my guts? Like, what does that do physiologically? Um, once I allowed myself to feel it, it wasn't so terrifying anymore. You know, like it was uncomfortable for a few hours, but then, then I came through the other side feeling like I'd, I'd dropped a huge weight. Um, so that's the first group, you know, just all the parts of myself. And I already sort of mentioned the second group, which is having a friend, having a partner, having a, a coach or a therapist or, or a whoever, um, having a relationship with another self, you know, so there's two of ourselves that are, that are, um, like, like you mentioned your partner, you know, like trying to, trying to come into a relationship between equals. And, and at this point, when you have two people, to me, the crucial distinction is like, um, are we relating to each other uh, in a in a in a stance of domination, where one person is more important or uh, calling the shots, telling the other one what to do, or you know, like ha has to be prioritized for some reason, or are we coming to this as partners? And for me, partnership implies difference. You know that that you have a complementary pair, that you you have different strengths and weaknesses, and that you kind of add up to something greater than the sum of the parts when you come together. And so the, the, the first thing is about getting, you know, getting into right relationship with the parts of yourself. And then the second thing is like practicing partnership relationships where you genuinely respect the other person. And that means like, um, you know, for me, it means it's been this long, slow process, which I'm still, I feel like I'm still at the start of, of coming to terms with the fact that everyone else is having uh, just as rich and just as an important and you know that their life world is just as big and complex as mine mm -hmm. um, and realizing that they are just you know generally doing the best they can with the experiences and the resources that they've got um, and learning to yeah really respect that um, yeah they're trying to they're, usually people are trying their hardest and like I can easily get irritated or frustrated with someone but if I um, if I can reach for, you know, curiosity and compassion, generally we can find ways to, to uh, cultivate relationships that are, that are constantly deepening, you know, that, and by, by a, a relationship that's deepening, I mean, it, it's um, the capacity, it keeps increasing. So like we might, okay, here we have a relationship. There's the two of us you've invited me onto your podcast and, and the terms of the relationship are pretty narrow. It's like, you're going to ask me some questions. I'm going to answer them. Then it's going to go on the internet at some point. Um, but if we keep getting to know each other, if we are vulnerable with each other, if we disclose things and we uh, hold each other in trust and if we help each other out or, you know, like we, if we have this um, history of, uh, you know, showing up for each other, then the capacity of our relationship would, would widen, it would deepen, mm -hmm. and, and you could bring more, of, more parts of yourself, not just the podcast host, but, um, yeah, the person who's really depressed or really ambitious and excited or, or, or all the rest. So there's that kind of, um, I think of this as kind of like drilling the fundamentals, you know. So, like, um, it's, it's getting more popular these days to talk about the, one of the fundamentals is to master your own sovereignty. 
like mm-hmm. really work out how to how to um, claim your own agency and and notice what things are manipulating you, uh, whether that's your own psychological hangups or it's the propaganda you're watching or whatever or your ideology that you've been entranced by. Like get free of that. And then the other fundamentals for me, once you've got your sovereignty, is is practicing mutual sovereignty. This this partnership relationship stuff. So there's like. I mean, there's a whole lifetime of work just to just to get good at relationship. Um, but then I do like to go up a little bit in scale. So in in I've um, coined some terminology which like is useful for me. I'm not really um, I don't think it's important that everyone agrees with my terms, but I just use it because it, it helps me make the argument. Um, after you have the, these partnership relationships or dyads, a dyad is just two people. Then I talk about the crew, which is like. I say it's like a dinner table sized group. So somewhere between three and eight people. Um, and that's the next order of scale. And when you have somewhere in that three to eight people group, you can really start to get shit done. Like um, if you think about, I don't know, maybe if you just think about startups, for instance, like the best work that we ever did with Lumio, um, that was really kind of five or six people that are doing most of the work. You know, it's like you, a, a really great team is just, absolutely superhuman and and you want to limit it in size because kind of like you're saying about this this Dunbar number of 150 200 people like there's a smaller number somewhere around five six seven people where um you you get all the benefits of collaboration that is everyone is playing to their strengths and you get to utilize everyone's distinctive capabilities uh, but there's so much shared context that you don't need a whole bunch of artificial architecture to hold in a coherent state. So you don't need a bunch of rules. You don't need a bunch of systems. You can just have some minimal agreements, some minimal communication spaces and rhythms, um, and, and really get a lot of work done and, and not a lot of, um, you don't, there's not, you're not losing much in the kind of collaboration tax of having a project management system and lots of policies and having all these long winded, um, consensus meetings and things like that. So I'm really, uh, I'm really a big believer in these small groups, really, really small groups like that. And, um, and my sense is that like, uh, we just need to practice. Like we just need to find excuses to get into these small groups and to practice, um, setting some kind of intention and, and executing, you know, and whether that's an external intention, like, like I mentioned with a startup, um, or it could be quite an in, in, internal one, you know? So like a lot of the small groups that I'm involved with, they're just really simply a space for peer support for, you know, like accountability. I just, before this, I just got off a call, um, with a couple of friends and we call up every week and we just check in on our accountabilities, like our personal development goals, you know? So like, um, I'm, I should be meditating every day. I should be doing my exercise every day and I should be uh, practicing my Italian every day and having a buddy there like to check in with once a week. It really keeps me accountable. It's like, I did really well on one of these and the other two, not so good this week. And Mm -hmm. like have a little conversation and, and, and um, yeah, it's it's like a really excellent um, environment for me to stay focused on my development goals and to hold that space for others too. Um, so that only gets you up to the scale of like eight people. And already that to me is like, <laughs> it's a lot of work, you know? Yeah. Let's, let's stop here and talk to me about 
why we have such a hard time in dealing with all these three levels, the parts of ourselves, dealing with the dyads and with the crew. What are the things that are conditioning us to really, like as an adult, to think about this concept that you're talking about? I, I think most people and myself included have to really take some, like it's a lot of work in undoing. So talk to me about the, challenges that face us just from naturally being able to do this yeah um i just have my own way of thinking about it which i don't think is particularly scientific but maybe is you know a useful sketch which is like one thing is about the sort of broad culture you know that we're that you're raised in or that you live in and and cultures are they live on a spectrum between very, very communal and collective and very individualistic. So that's one part. It's just like, uh, you know, that, and that will show up and like, well, it shows up in how do people respond in a pandemic, you know, like you watch the response in Eastern countries versus Western countries. And you can immediately see that like having cultures that are, that are um, biased towards the collective, they really know how to show up in a, in a pandemic. Like yeah. that, that's kind of, that comes naturally in a way where in the West it's, um, we can't even understand. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a different way of thinking, you know, like we've got a different way of um, balancing the, the needs of the individual and the collective. Um, so there's that dimension. And then there's the, I think probably more substantial is just uh, basically I think about it as trauma, you know, like that. Um, so when I talk about just myself and my fear, you know, and my, and my instinct to disown my fear, like where did I get that from? Well, my way of thinking about it is that um, I got it because I was raised a boy in a, um, you know, quite a macho society in, in rural New Zealand, you know, like where what was expected of me was to be tough and to be strong and to be a good mm -hmm. sports player and that sort of thing. Um, and and the, the quickest way to, to lose my sense of masculinity as a boy was to, to feel fear, to, to cry, to show any emotion, you know? And mm -hmm. so like, I was really, um, yeah, just, just proactively trained out of my emotional intelligence. I think I was born with emotional intelligence and then I had it literally beaten out of me, you know? And I think that's the experience of a lot of men in the world. It's a lot of people in the world have had that, like, um, that experience. And that's just, that's just, um, like, where does that come from? Is it some baddies out there, you know, like some bad people that really wanted to fuck me up? No, it's like, I got that from the other boys and from my older brother and from my dad and from the other men in my life and the women in my life, actually from everyone in my life. And where did they get it from? Well, they got it from their parents and so on and so on. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, we, we, um, I, in a way I feel like human groups are kind of like, a hall of mirrors where we just reflect stuff back and forth between each other, you know, like that uh, it's, feedback loop. It's really hard. Yeah, exactly. There's a big feedback loop and it's hard to, to notice sometimes that, that all we're doing is echoing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it really takes a great deal of energy um, to interrupt that cycle and do something different. Absolutely. And then, you know, we go to school and, um, Oh, you have to ask the special person before you go to the bathroom. You know, like you need to get a special ticket to go down the hallway to go to the bathroom now. You know, like the, 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 the level of coercion uh, and subtle violence that we inflict on children in schools to me is just absurd. And it's normal. It's just, it's just totally normalized that like um, 
schooling is submission training. That's what it's there for. It's just you just got to learn how to get in line and be disciplined and and do as you're told. Like that's what my experience of school was, and many many people have experienced school that way. Mine too. It's really rare to find people who were in a school that was just like super enabling and cultivating their creativity and their expression and their character and all those things. And then you go to school, you know, uh, sorry, out of school into university, into the workplace. Um, maybe you grow up and you vote and you start interacting with the state and wherever you turn, it's the same hierarchical domineering frameworks where like there's a minority of people that call the shots and the majority of the people that are supposed to submit. Um, and then, okay, then you like, okay, I don't like this. I want to be, I want to be an anarchist or I'm in some kind of subculture where we're going to reject that dominator hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And you say, thank God, you know, that those bad times are behind us and we've created a, a lovely new environment and we're going to do this crew. We're going to do this cooperative or yeah, like this, um, this group where we support each other in our personal growth or whatever we're doing. Um, but you can't, you can't just leave your conditioning at the door. You know, it's not like a shirt that you can take off. It's encoded into, not quite in your genes, but very close to it. Maybe some of it isn't in your genes. It's like, it's so deeply in our instincts and reflexes and, and our muscle memory. Um, so it really takes a lot of conscious effort to, to get out of those patterns and do something different. Wow. Yeah. There's so much in there, man. There's so much in there. And I totally, um, you know, as you talk about school and how it's submission training, I feel like you're like, you're like fighting for me there for like the kid that was just like, I was way too much for school. And I, what comes up for me there is I feel like a resentment towards the system that would be domineering and I simultaneously recognize my own power in my ability to be persuasive, to be manipulative. And I like have, I feel like you're standing up for me, but you're also attacking the part of me that can use that for my benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, yeah, that's a really interesting. And honestly, to be totally honest, I felt that, a number of times as I read your articles, I've felt like, yeah, that's definitely the way intellectually. And then I'm like, wait a second, I'm like, I'm going to lose some of my power here if I, if I do this. And one of the things that you keep talking about is these non-hierarchical um, anythings, really. Um, and I, you know, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson and Peterson kind of talks about nested hierarchies. And so can you just, just kind of talk to me about hierarchy, what it is, what it looks like and, and what it looks like to try to operate without the ones that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you asked because there is some nuance to, you know, like I think this terminology of like non-hierarchical is kind of a useful signal or a flag, but it doesn't actually, doesn't really hold up to close analysis. Like when you actually get into it. Um, so what I'm actually, um, trying to move away from are dominator hierarchies where, uh, you have this kind of chain chain of command where there's the, the closer you are to the top, the more important you are. Um, the more your voice matters, the more you are able to, um, inflict your will on other people, you know, which is what most hierarchies tend to look like. Um, there are other kinds of hierarchies that are, you know, people use the terminology of growth hierarchy. I don't know if it's even necessary to use that, but I get what they're saying, which is kind of like, 
I mean, if I want to learn Italian, I learn from someone who knows Italian better than me, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and that's like, um, if we are opting into that relationship by mutual enthusiastic consent, like there is a kind of hierarchical dimension to that relationship because clearly I'm learning from them. You know, they're giving something to me. It's, it's definitely going in one direction. It's kind of like the chain of command in that sense, but it's consensual and, and, um, and I get to opt in or opt out, you know, it's not about them, the, this tyrannical Italian teacher that is inflicting their skills on me. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that principle of consent of agency of autonomy, that's like really, it's really, really essential to me. Um, some people that I like, they use this terminology of, um, competency networks, which mm-hmm. I really like that idea. And especially a dynamic competency network, you know, which is the idea that, that, um, some people are better suited to different tasks or they've got specific expertise. And, you know, during this, during this pandemic and the kind of um, unfolding culture war around the pandemic, you're really seeing these competency networks coming alive and new ones shuffling, you know, like where people are like, who do I look to? Who's, who's credible? Who, do, who, yeah, who's making good sense here that I can, that I can listen to. Um, but you also see it in, in practical situations, you know, so if there's an earthquake and people suddenly need to mobilize, you know, like it's really obvious who looks towards who, you know, like who's ready to take action and who, um, is in need of support or who, or who has to, you know, <clears throat> at different stages in a crisis, you'll see different people responding. And that's how it should be that someone has got these giant biceps and they can help move the heavy stuff <laughs> and someone else is really good with spreadsheets and they'll coordinate all the volunteers or whatever, you know? Yeah. I, the, the term that I think Jamie wheel used that I recently heard was dynamic subordination. The idea that whoever knows what the next step is becomes the leader just naturally. Yeah. I mean, I get that. And I, I really like the way Jamie thinks and I respect him but I'm not up for subordination. Like it's just a word that gives me the creeps. Yeah. It's kind of like people talk about service, uh, servant leadership. And I'm like, I don't want a fucking servant. Like yeah. why would I want to be a servant? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is just semantics, you know, it's just the terminology for me. It's like, <clears throat> I'm really happy to delegate to people to follow their lead. Um, temporarily on specific, specific domains where they show that they've got some competence or some expertise. Um, and so long as I've got the right to pull out when, when they lose my trust, like that I can say, you know what, like, yes, you did have something, you know, like, um, say we take, take, uh, J- uh, Jamie, for example, like, yeah, it's really good to listen to him because he clearly knows what he's talking about in this topic. But if in three months time he starts going off on some random conspiracy theories, like, then I will unplug. Right. And I'll mm-hmm. go like, mm, no need to listen to that anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a, a permanent fixture where he's embedded and, and has some kind of positional authority that is encoded into his role, you know, it's absolutely. And I think we're fluid relationship in that. Yeah, totally. And I think the fluidity is actually touching on a really important topic right now because we are in a time where our information ecology is broken, polluted, poisoned. People don't know where to look, but there's this just like constant raw of like, you got to listen to the scientists, to the experts and to the, you know, the authority, but at the same time, there's like the authority has been abused. The power has been abused so bad. And for so long that it's like this, uh, this thing that you're talking about, this, this dynamic leadership or this, this fluid relationship with any person or any idea. It's like, um, you know, in philosophy, you don't 
you know, Rich, Rich's ideas aren't worthless because he has a beard or they don't have credibility because he has a beard. Like they have credibility because they make sense that they're well thought out, that they're, you know, that they, that they actually work. These are the metrics where people, um, need to be giving over their subordination air quotes there as that's just the word I'm using there. Um, it's been really interesting for me. Um, you know, especially for the, because I'm in Italy, we've kind of, um, we're like the first European country to, to deal with the pandemic. And so we're kind of ahead, ahead of the other countries in a sense. And so like, I was really paying very close attention for the first couple of weeks and seeing how, you know, like most of my friends are in other parts of Europe in North America and New Zealand and Australia. And so like, um, I was tracking how it was unfolding in each of those countries and seeing the different kinds of political leadership and my political leanings. I mean, I'm quite fluid myself, but like, I have a, I spend a lot of time reading and being with and organizing with anarchists, you know, so like I have this kind of anti-state bias, um, but it's been a real, I feel like I've really been schooled watching um, uh, uh, what to me, I think of as like a positive kind of nationalism in New Zealand where literally every single person that I've talked to back home in New Zealand has expressed genuine love and admiration for the prime minister. And it's because she's showing up in a way where everyone just has absolute confidence. It's like this person is getting on the TV every single day and they're saying things that seem true and they're being really clear and they're being compassionate and considerate and they're making sure that everyone's looked after and that they're trying to do a balance of all the different needs and interests and just being straight with people. And it's like, wow, that's, that's very effective. You know, like New Zealand went into lockdown, um, after like 200 cases or something like that, like a really rapid, a really rapid lockdown and we'll, time will tell, but I think they're doing a really excellent job of um, minimizing the harm from this pandemic compared to a lot of other Western countries. And the way that they've done it is to, I think, to play on the best side of nationalism, which is to say like the prime minister Jacinda Ardern is being the mother of the nation right now. And she's appealing to people's psychological instincts about what a mother is for, you know, or what a parent is for. It's like someone who, who's going to take on the special responsibility and they've got your best interest in heart. And sometimes when they say, you've got to go to your room, you go to your room, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> I really think that's what's happening. And I really am frightened of authoritarianism and nationalism and like how, um, how we're setting the scene right now for this, like accelerating the, the rise of the far right, which has been well underway for the last decade. Like I'm freaked out about all that stuff. But I do feel like I'm getting schooled on how there is a kind of leadership which does appeal to a kind of nationalism, which is really effective in a moment like this. And I don't think it's going to do anything horribly wrong in New Zealand. You know, like I think, I think there's a really robust kind of um, accountability and honesty and transparency in the political system there compared to other systems. Um, that this is actually just going to be an effective moment of leadership in the, in the history of this country. And it's not going to be like, I don't think it's going to turn into this horrible power grab or like turn really corrupt and toxic. Well, I hope you're right. And, um, that would be a great example. And I think that there are going to be examples that come out of this as like what, uh, it could be as far as peacefulness. My, obviously my, my beef with any state is its lack of, you know, consent, explicit consent, um, 
But I agree with you that this whole thing has really, you know, you said schooled you. And I think this thing has schooled me too, because, you know, as a, uh, you know, I'm a athlete that does sports that put me so far out into the void that it really humbles me. And like my self-reliance and individuality are like so deeply woven into my experience that anarchy as an ideology has fit really well into that. But in the face of this, it has raised questions that I've never experientially faced, like Mm. collective sense-making, collective decision-making, and collective action on a scale that is every single person on the planet. And it's made me really reconsider, okay, like, you know, like three or four days into this, I had the realization, okay, like, for a long time, we've said that collective action is going to come from these gigantic governments that have a really dark, tyrannical side. But also at the moment right now, these dark monsters are currently, you know, as far as I can tell, kind of sheltering and we're taking collective action and people are actually responding. They're staying in their homes and we're not having to weld the doors closed. Um, But what are your thoughts like from, um, you know, this, this crew mentality or the next, the next step up from the crew in your articles is a congregation, right? Yeah. I know that. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I I think you know where I'm going here. Well, it's kind of just stepping up the the ladder up the scale, right? Like, so we did the, the self and the diets and Mm -hmm. the crews and then the congregations and like, for me, the point of the congregation is it's a, it's a place to meet your crew mm-hmm. and um, uh, meaning that it's kind of, it's, a, it's very much like dating, you know, like that, that you don't, ex- basically a lot of people find that they need to date a bunch of people to find anyone decent. And like, um, there's this kind of um, long tail graph, you know, where you've got like a lot of people you'll go on one date with and you go, thank you. No, thanks. <laughs> That's fine. No more. And then there'll be a few people that you go on a few dates with, you know, you, and you sort of get like, maybe there's a vibe here and maybe you'll um, be together for a couple of months or something. Um, and then there's maybe a tiny handful of people that you actually have a really long-term committed relationship with that, you know, becomes a uh, foundational part of your identity. You know, like, oh yeah, there was the five years that I was with that partner and that really shaped who I am. Um, it's really the same, I think, with crews. Like, you can't expect that any particular configuration of people, like you can't just take five random people and put them together and say, now collaborate, you know, like share money or like go on this mission together. Like it's just not going to happen. And so you need um, some kind of dating process. And, and the, the, what I saw working at Inspiral was having this thing, I call it the congregation, which is kind of a funny word. Like it's kind of a joke um, because it's sort of taking the place of church. That's yeah, it's churchy. Yeah, it's supposed to be churchy because it kind of puts people off, and I think that's funny. <laughs> um, but I also chose congregation because of the verb congregate. You know, like the main thing a congregation does is it congregates. It comes together on a regular basis. Um, so church congregations, they usually meet um, every week, but they also have, you know, like there's the wider congregation that comes together every year around Christmas time. You know, like there's kind of this one or two points in the year where everyone really it's like make a special effort to go to church 
because it's the special Sunday of the year. Um, so, so in my way of thinking, the congregation doesn't do much, you know, so like in Inspiral, we don't spend a lot of time sitting around with 200 people going, hmm, what should we do? What should Inspiral think? What are our values? You know, like doing all of this kind of abstract, um, trying to build agreements together at, at that scale. Like we don't really do that. What we do is um, get together once a year for a really amazing week. And then the rest of the time we're working in our crews. Mm-hmm. And um, the congregation is like a, I mean, if you just look at it purely from a kind of pragmatic perspective of um, trying to do work, you know, so we've got, all, we've got this network of all these little startups and small companies and, you know, most startups fail. And so you bring a team together and you do this project and you get some funding and it goes a certain way and then it doesn't work anymore. And so then you lose, you lose those people. But instead of just losing those people out into the infinite space of the free um, market, you know, the employment market, most of those people will stay within the bubble of Inspiral. And so mm. their skills, their relationships, their networks, uh, the things that they picked up on the last job, they stay within that bounded uh, economy. And that is such an extraordinary advantage because... Mm. Um, because they have the culture of values. Exactly. Exactly. And, they, they, and, it's, and it, it, they have the embodied values. They have the mm-hmm. behaviors, you know, mm-hmm. they've got the habits and they've got the relationships where they know, like, who do I trust when it comes to this particular domain of expertise? Oh, it's that guy over, over the hallway. You know, yeah, that gives me, that gives um, me goosebumps. Yeah, there's so many advantages. Hearing that. And, and it means that now, like as a, um, as a long-standing member of Inspiral who's been seen, you know, I've, I've been seen to be a contributor. I've showed up in, in lots of acts of service. Um, I know that there's like, I don't know, 30, 40 people. And I could call up any one of them today and say, Hey, look, I'm in a tough spot. I need a few thousand dollars. And they wouldn't hesitate, you know, like they wouldn't give it a second thought. They say, mm-hmm. sure. Um, and the degree of, confidence and courage and resilience that gives me is extraordinary and being the person on the other end of the phone when someone calls me and says i need help i mean that's the best part the mm-hmm. best part is being able to, to to be of service to someone else yeah and i love the idea too that hypothetically an in spiral um like multiple congregations could hypothetically trade people back and forth because of the similar values. And I've rang the bell for so long that the only education, the the truly important education is a values education. So that is a great reaffirmation of that idea. But I and want I, to talk. I, um, I, I want to just say a little, little thing on that, which is um, generally when people, I think when people think values, uh, they're thinking about nouns, you know, it's like honesty, courage, these sorts of things, transparency, freedom. Um, and I'm, I'm biased towards verbs. It's more about, I'm more interested in the behaviors and the practices. And those, those um, emanate from the values, you know, like mm-hmm. if, if I have a practice, which is like, um, yeah, I, I authentically listen to you and, and, um, and I respect what you've got to say. It's because I have a value about um, equality and respect and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's really easy to get distracted about by talking about the values and it's really easy to fake having values if you say the right things that's what virtue signaling is mm-hmm. um but it's really hard to fake the practices because you're either doing them or you're not you know so i really focus on that practice level um, and that's basically the that's the way that we scale it's not by extending the collective identity beyond and spirals 200 people to be like 200 million people it's we scale the practices so that there's some kind of um yeah shared infrastructure of how do we behave and when we encounter each other we kind of know like how to how to work together Hmm. um but we get to preserve our our local small-scale sovereignty yeah i love that i think that's a great distinction um you know i think that the one thing that you were talking about on the or like kind of the theme of that rebel wisdom video that i found you on and i think a theme that we're all kind of curious about right now is resilience and I see myself hung up on this scalability of your crew and congregation idea, but what are the resilient outcomes of this kind of behavior between, you know, these nested circles that you're talking about? Well, there's the kind, like I said about um, when people leave one team, you know, like if a, if a, if a startup fails, that's the kind of resilience that you get from people being bound together. Um, but resilience is a funny word because, you know, like in engineering terms, it, it kind of means um, the number of times you can bend something before it breaks. Mm-hmm. And I am, I, I, I do kind of like the other idea, which is anti-fragile, you know, anti-fragility, which is Perfect. like not just that it's going to break eventually and you extend the length of time it takes before it breaks, but actually that every impact, every stress actually increases its strength and its, mm-hmm. and its flexibility and its capacity. Um, so then it's like, how does, how does a stress turn into a growth? You know, like that's the question. And um, well, this thing, like I mentioned about my fear, you know, like being in Italy, I'm here with my partner. I don't have anyone else physically around me that I'm in a relationship with. We're in a national disaster. Like I have fear. And the anti-fragile response is like, notice that fear and get curious about it and sit with it and, and express some compassion for myself. And, um, and inquire underneath, like, what's driving that fear? Like, what is that, you know, like, um, what are some of the deeper stories or the deeper habits and patterns and beliefs and values and things that are playing out underneath that generate that fear? And I think, I mean, it's early days, but I think that I'm learning about myself and I'm growing in the process, you know, like, mm-hmm. I really feel like this whole process has uh, loosened me up in some important ways around predictability and uncertainty and control. Me and too. And that's, that's the result of um, a, an approach to adversity that is looking for growth opportunities, you know? And it's not something that I'm doing on my, on my own because I'm such a great guy, you know? It's like, it's, it's, it's being metabolized by my network of relationships. It's not me doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's me by myself, like, honestly, I can last about two days on my own and then I'll go into a panic attack and I'll just be completely useless. <laughs> it's the relationships and when the when the relationships are flowing you know like when the when the system is kind of metabolizing the impacts that hit it um as a group we're super resilient we're anti-fragile like we have this growing this like the the call that i mentioned that that was on just before this one like the guy who was on the other end of the phone um is in this moment of his life where he's just glowing like he's just really he's just in a really good state 
And I was feeling really low and grumpy and I got to kind of offload some shitty emotions and he helped me process them and feel okay about it. Three months ago, the roles were reversed. You know, he was really dark and I had this enthusiasm and this ability to kind of like be there for him and pick him up. And it's like, that's what I mean by the, the network of relationships metabolizing the, the emotions as they're going and turn them into opportunities for growth rather than um, as, you know, like yet another blow, yet another abuse, you know, like this sort of crushing, bruising experience that life can be when you're facing it without enough support. Wow. There's so much in what you just said. And I just want to like verbally synthesize some of that. And I just wrote down and underlined, how does a stress turn into growth? I think that is just such an amazing way to think about this. And as you differentiated the difference or yeah, (laughs) as you differentiated the difference between resilient and anti-fragile, it made me think that resiliency is something that can be put onto a complicated system, an externally designed rigid system. And anti-fragility is the effervescent property of something that's genuinely complex. Our bodies, the ecology, the weather, um, all these things. And which brings us, you know, one of the first things that you said in this interview was that Inspiral is a complex system. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's just an amazing, that's an amazing idea. I think that we need more complex systems and I think anti-fragility is one of the, uh, traits of of genuinely complex systems is that something you've seen in in spiral you know you mentioned that if a startup fails that the people typically stay inside of the congregation but what other kinds of anti-fragility have you noticed there in that experiment um there's something about um, and i'm laughing because we're wandering into territory which is very um it's adjacent to cult behavior uh, so it's just a disclaimer to be like, be careful, <laughs> because um, what we have is progressively escalating vulnerability, um, disclosures, mm-hmm. making disclosures to each other, which is something that they do like in Scientology and stuff to to um, to be able to use as blackmail. You know, like if you, if I know um, all the skeletons in your closet, then I can really blackmail you quite effectively. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is why I say it's like kind of cult behavior, but um, it's done with a great deal of um, yeah, consent and checks and balances and accountability and so on. But w- what that looks like in practice is I said we have this, um, this big gathering every year, which is like a really significant moment in the calendar. And one of the things that happens in there, one of our sort of rituals, if you like, um, is a space that we, I mean, it goes by different names, but we usually call it something like a sharing circle. And it's really simple. It's really straightforward. It's not like complicated. Um, but it comes, you know, after we've spent a few days together on retreat, um, it's in a sense, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a climax of our time together. And it's, it's constructed in a way where it feels very, I mean, the word that comes to mind is like reverent, you know, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's this kind of, it's got a kind of sacredness to it in a, in a sense. Um, and I feel like I'm kind of scratching to try and find a language for it. Because when I say sacred, then I'm like, oh, but it's not like weird, airy, fairy, like mythology and crap like that. Like it's it's sacred in the sense that, and it's maybe sacred in the sense that people are, um, 
like the way that you show up at a funeral, you know, like you have a certain attitude, a certain mm-hmm. bearing. It's a bit like that. I mean, it's not sad like a funeral, but people are on, they compose themselves in a certain way. And, and what we're doing there is we have um, a good chunk of the community in the room and everyone is listening. And the job is to listen. Uh, one at a time, like uh, without any, you know, there's no MC or conductor or something, but one at a time people will get up to the front of the, usually to the front of the room and they'll share some story from their life. Um, and sometimes we'll set a theme, you know, like I've had ones where it was kind of like stories about money or um, about, yeah, growth through adversity or, you know, you can set a tone like that. Um, and, and the focus is much, much more on the listening of the story rather than the telling of the story and really like being ultra present with this person as they tell stuff. Mm-hmm. And what happens over, over the course of the evening and then doing that year on and year on and year on, you know, like I've done with some of these people, I've done this like coming up 10 years. Um, we hear the most extraordinary stories, you know, because the quality of the listening, um, mm. sort of opens up people's willingness to share more and more parts of themselves. And so there's been so many times where I've shared something in that circle that I've never said out loud before, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned before we, we press record about your like developing this courage to open up about some of your opinions that you think, you know, could be unpopular. It's that kind of stuff. You know, it's the, there's stuff inside of me that I think is important that I feel basically uncomfortable expressing in public because I think I'm going to be attacked or maybe I'm saying something harmful or hurt, hurtful or something. Um, having a space where you just know that the listening is going to be genuine and that you're going to be held with respect and care, regardless of what comes out of your mouth. Um, it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary gift. Um, and it's the site I think of so much growth, both for the individuals and for the relationships, because what happens for me in that space is like, it's not so much that the content of the story is moving, although it is, it's more about the connection that I feel with the other person when they're sharing, you know, like, that they might be giving voice to an experience, which is something like I've had, but I've never had the words to express it. Or it, maybe it's something that's really commonplace to me, but it's just still amazing to see someone else admit that they also have those thoughts and feelings. And doing that year and year and year and year, like builds the most extraordinary level of trust and, and the shared context, you know, like um, in, in that group now, I've got a, a library of stories from people, which is like, it kind of spans five or six generations, you know, like hearing about um, what your grandparents were thinking before they migrated to New Zealand or what your grandkids are up to now or your wishes and dreams for your great grandkids. Like hearing this whole library of stories creates a, a, a massive multi-generational relational context, which is just really hard to explain to someone who doesn't have it. You know, it really feels something like, like what I imagine a more sort of indigenous, uh, indigenous tribal sort of oral culture might be something like that. Wow. Yeah. And in a lot of your writings, I've noticed that you reference the Maori people of New Zealand. Um, is that a, you know, talk to me about that kind of behavior in their culture. Yeah. That's, um, it's a, it's an awkward thing for me to talk about because um, I'm not Maori, you know, I'm, I'm a Pakeha, I'm a settler, I'm, a col- I'm descended from colonizers and uh, I'm not deeply embedded within the Maori world. And so like, sometimes I tell people that like, to the degree that I have indigenous knowledge, it's like, um, it's, a, it's, it's like a badly photocopied <laughs> version, you know, it's like mm-hmm. something that I've observed from the outside and, and it goes through my own lenses, which like, obviously I'm missing a lot of what's happening and probably 
projecting a lot of my own nonsense on top of it. But I still feel like, like if you've, if you've traveled a bunch, um, anyone who's, who's traveled a bunch and gone to New Zealand agrees, like that New Zealand has an extraordinary vibe for want of a better word. Like so many people go there for the first time and they step off the plane and they say, ah, I feel like I've come home for the first time Mm. or it's so peaceful or, you know, whatever the words are that they use to describe that experience. But there's my words for it is just simply peace. Like, it's one of the most peaceful places I've ever been. I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's because I know it so well, it's the most peaceful place for me. Um, and, and the way that shows up is some really simple gestures. It's like, you know, the last time I moved into a new house in New Zealand, the neighbors came around with uh, vegetables that they'd grown. And it wasn't just a one-off thing. It was like, they regularly did this. This is just like part of the social fabric, you know, that, that people have this sense of, um, they're not, anxious around each other. There's not a sense of threat. They're at peace. They're like, Oh, I've got this thing. I can share it with you. You know? Um, and I, I suspect that the reason it's peaceful in New Zealand is because, because of the relationship between the indigenous people and the settler people, because the, on the, on the, on the settler side, like New Zealand's one of the, the youngest colonies. And so when the British, established that colony, they were already kind of backtracking on colonization. They were, they'd already kind of um, starting to come to terms with the fact that it's really horrible to subjugate people and you shouldn't just go and fuck up another place and like mm-hmm. um, take over. So they were, they were starting to do that, although it was still, I mean, uh, you know, this is why I say it's all good. Like it's important to say it was also like extremely violent, um, literally decimated the, the local population and, and stole almost all of the land. You know, like it's extremely, it's an extremely big deal. It's bordering on genocide. But mm-hmm. I'm just saying in comparison to, to other colonies, it's uh, on, a, on a different scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the indigenous culture, which is quite distinctive amongst indigenous cultures in that it's extremely developmental. Like um, at the time that we signed the treaty, which is between the British crown and the uh, indigenous Maori chiefs, some of the tribes had um, like international merchant ships in like 30 different ports, you know? Well, like, so it's like a really advanced, very um, ambitious, outward focused, um, yeah, merchant sort of culture. It's, mm. it's not just like, um, this very small, like not interested in trade and development kind of a thing. Um, so that's, that's a unique part of the story as well. And you have a, um, basically a very effective decentralized network governance system up and down the islands of New Zealand. And they were just really effective at resisting colonization for a long time. You know, like that, that by, by which I mean Maori sovereignty is um, is is really intact in places throughout that country. Like that, that there are there are parts where you know the chain of sovereignty has never been interrupted. Mm-hmm. Like that, this is the, the 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 influx of migrants, the this uh, settler extracting violent culture never fully established a hold here. Um, and it really shows, you know, like the indigenous culture has such, um, depth and vitality to it and such deep, 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 deep roots and foundations. And what does it mean to be indigenous? You know, it means, I think to live in partnership, uh, with 
the land and the uh, and everything about the land and to do that as a steward over a long time i mean again this is some random white guy saying this but that's what i think it, that's what it looks like to me from the outside that means like they know how to be they know how to be in in a long-term relationship and and i think that as settlers we've got to benefit from some of that mm-hmm. and that means like yeah we get to enjoy some of the peace it means we also get to enjoy like even subconsciously without consciously knowing what's going on, I think we learned a lot about how to be a group because of how we saw the indigenous people being groups, you know? So like, uh, for example, in, in settler culture and white culture, there's not really uh, an equivalent for what they call the porphyry where you have two groups of people coming to meet each other. You know, one is the locals and one of them are the foreigners or for the out of towners. And there's a whole long, sometimes it takes at least a whole day just to get those two groups of people to meet each other. You know, there's a whole ceremony of um, a, a process of engagement for bringing those two groups together in a way that they're settled and ready to collaborate, ready to put their old grievances aside, uh, reminded of their um, common ties in the past and the reasons to trust each other and really ready to do something um, useful and productive together. There's like a, a very complicated a sequence of gestures and steps required to get to do that process the right way. And it's not just some random mumbo jumbo, you know, it's like it's designed in a way because it helps to settle a group, you know, two groups and, and make them into one group. And we just don't have anything like that, that literacy um, or that, that toolkit, you know, those methodologies in, in settler culture. And that's just one of like, you know, obviously many, many examples. Yeah, it's amazing just hearing you. You have such a humble way of prefacing all of your opinions, but I can see just even your observation of that and uh, how you've grown up in New Zealand, how that's integrated into a business like Inspiral. Um, But one of the things that I have heard you talk about that is really profound for me is courage. So maybe you could just talk to me about how we need courage right now, where it comes from, how we get it, what do we do, what it means? Sure. Um, I think I got into courage because there was a phase where everyone was talking about hope and I was like, mm. hope is candy. <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I think hope is a luxury um, and, and courage is about showing up and persisting and giving it your all without the hope of a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's, it's, um, it's doing that risky thing. It's standing up for what's right. Um, it's making a stand. Sometimes it's making a sacrifice um, for something that that your heart knows is true. You know, like that's what that's why it's called courage. It's it's comes from the word for heart. You know, and that um, for me, where does it come from? I mean, I, it's, it's a simple play on words, but I really believe it. It comes from encouragement and that's a social process. It's like people encourage each other. Like, why did I get the confidence to start sharing? You know, like I said, I was in those sharing circles and I started telling stories that I'd never told anyone else before, shared parts of my life that I had never shared before. Like, why, where did I get the courage from to do something like that? Well, I saw other people doing it and they encouraged me to follow suit, you know? Like, and, and when I'm by myself, you know, when I'm isolated, I just get discouraged. Like I lose my courage. And when I'm in relationships that have 
a lot of encouragement, you know, a lot of kindness, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of support, a lot of accountability, you know, like that's encouraging too. Um, that's where I developed my courage. You know, like my early encounter with Inspiral was the first time that I met people that were, uh, that, uh, that, that could hear and receive my ambition and not laugh, you know, not make me not be like, oh, who are you to have this world changing ideas? Like you're just a nobody. They were like, that's awesome. I love your dream. That sounds amazing. Um, where are you going to start and how can I help? Mm. That was the attitude they came to me with. And, and then I picked up on that and loved it. And then I reproduced it back to the next people that I meet, you know? And so there's this, this um, feedback loop of people encouraging each other to be very courageous. Wow. Yeah, dude, I feel the feedback loop here. I feel encouraged just by talking to you. These ideas are really inspiring and I want to definitely encourage you. Your work is really awesome and I love your perspective. I super appreciate this talk today. This has been super rad. Thanks so much for giving me the uh, opportunity. Yeah, let's stay in touch. I want to do this again. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Really appreciate Rich's time and his insight. This is all really interesting stuff. You can find some of the articles that Rich writes. I read them on medium.com, and I've put a link to his profile as well as a number of the articles we kind of touched on today in the show notes, so check those out. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it, subscribe, leave a review. That helps a lot. And consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate the support. I've had three people donate this week. So if you're listening and wondering, oh, I wonder how many thousands of people listen to this show. I wonder how many people donate to this show. A couple thousand listens this week. Couple donations. So we're at about a thousand to one listening to donation rate, which is okay. I'm okay with that. But just if you're going to listen, make sure you consider where you're going to fall in that. I really appreciate it. We'll see you on the next episode, folks. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay sane. Don't go crazy, all right? We're, we're, we're all in this together. Peace.